Awesome. Thank you, Bianca, just for that introduction. And it's really a privilege to be with you guys this evening. So as she mentioned, I come from the other side of the East. And it's nice to be this side for a change. It almost feels like the area is a little bit different. And yeah, it feels like you took a trip. So it's good to be with you guys this evening. And just an extra blessing to be part of your baby dedications and celebrating campus. Um, as Bianca mentioned, I am one of those campus people. Change the campus, change the world. Hashtag for life. Like, I am those people. And I really just want to honor you guys as a congregation also, just for faithfully putting campus and the next generation, giving it a focus in your church for your faithful pursuit of students. Um, Bianca shared with us at our last Citywide Exco, just even the open doors that you guys are experiencing on open window, hearing the testimonies tonight of here. Um, I just really want to honor you guys for that. And I know that as you continue being faithful, you will see the fruit of that. And we will see our campuses change. We'll see revival happening on campus. So just, yeah, I want to honor you guys and encourage you in that also. Awesome. So tonight, we are carrying on with the sermon series you are busy with, The Messy Church, going through Corinthians. And I have the privilege of focusing on 1 Corinthians 7. That specifically speaks on marriage, sex, and singleness. Yes, I saw some of you sit up a little bit straighter now and pay more attention um, when I said that, simply because that is a hot topic, something we're all trying to figure out, trying to navigate that space. So hopefully you will get some answers here this evening. Um, but before I start, I also just want to take a moment to pray. Um, Father, thank you for the privilege of sharing your word this evening, Lord. I pray that as we study your word, Lord, that you will speak to us. Lord, would you come and minister to us, Lord? We invite your Holy Spirit in, and we say that we are open for you to speak to us this evening. In Jesus' name, I pray. So just like us with so many questions on marriage, sex, singleness, the Corinthian church was at the same place. And I wanna almost say that even more questions or deeper questions simply because of the context in which their church was, which was the Corinth city. And as you already spoke about sexual immorality earlier, it was a city that was full of sexual immorality, where sexual immorality was the norm, where perversion, um, sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, anything and everything went when it comes to sex. You could even go have sex with prostitutes at the temple. So it was really a difficult space that the church had to navigate in. But I almost want to say, although times are different, we are kind of in the same situation as them. If we look at the world today, for honest, sexual immorality is the norm. Perversion happens, homosexuality, basically anything you want to be and do is acceptable in the world that we live in today. So we are at the same place as the Corinthian church with so many questions and it just becomes harder and harder to navigate. Um, thinking even just of relationship statuses. Wow, I just used to think you can be single or married, but in the last while I realized you can be so much more than that. You can be single, married, dating, casually dating. You can be a boot call, you can be a Netflix and chill something. 
You can be vibing with someone. Um, the other day, I saw one that said you can be in a flirtationship with someone. So <laughs> it is just getting more and more complicated. And so as a church, we too need answers. We need to figure out how do we behave in a world where this exists. It has literally become a million-dollar business figuring out relationships, dating, singleness. Um, there's so many thousands of books written on it. I actually saw a few interesting books the other day. I want to read you some of the titles. So the first one I saw was Getting the Love That You Want. There's an answer for you. The second one was literally Eight Dates. That's the title of the book, and it's literally about how in eight dates you can get the committed and lifelong relationship you want. It only takes eight dates, guys. And then I'm going to share one, one more, and this was probably my favorite one. It literally said, how not to die alone. <laughs> Straight to the point, how not to die alone. But it seems crazy that with so much focus on figuring out the relationships, everyone is trying to figure it out. Marriage, sex, singleness. We're not getting any better. Things are not looking better for us as a world. We still see broken marriages taking place all the time. Depression in singleness, single-headed um, single um, single parent households. Just so much brokenness in relationships. And so we find ourselves at the same place as the Corinth Church, needing some answers. So tonight we're going to look at the answers that Paul gave the church in 1 Corinthians 7, and perhaps it'll give you some answers you are looking for as well. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gave some specific guidelines and behaviors for marriage, singleness, widows, divorce, and we're going to look at each one of them and hopefully get some clarity. So you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to read verse 1 to 5. And it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So, starting that scripture is a little weird, if we're honest, or like a little controversial. It sounds almost like Paul is saying that because you cannot control your, your sexual desires, get married. That that's why we get married. And yes, he is saying that, but we need to understand in the context of which he is writing this. He's writing as an answer to the Corinthian church on the questions they had with regards to sexual activity and marriage. You see, because of the sexual immorality of the city and the context that they live in, some of that spilled over into the church as well. There were even some believers who thought that 
It was okay to still live or still indulge in your carnal desires for intimacy through sexual promiscuity. So there was that group. But then as a response, there was also another group who went the extreme opposite and thought all sex was bad, that celibacy was needed to be holy, even celibacy within marriage. So when Paul starts to answer, he's answering these two very specific group of people. And in his answer, he's saying, there is sexual temptations and sex before marriage, no. But yes, sex within marriage. Sex is the, ach, sex. <laughs> marriage is the answer for your temptation to sexual immoral, immorality. So he is specifically giving a clear answer to these groups of people when he writes this. So it's important just for us to understand that um, it's not that Paul is saying the only purpose of marriage is sex. No, he's just answering a very specific question that they had. Um, but within these verses, he goes on to give some further principles just on marriage. Um, and I want to look at some of those as well. So the first one is that you should have your own wife and your own husband. Paul describes in verse 3 that because of the sexual immorality, that each man should have his own wife and vice versa. One wife, one husband. Um, looking at sexual immorality, the Greek word for sexual immorality, I hope I pronounced this correctly, is purnaya, purnia. <laughs> and this represents different sexual misconducts, including sex outside of a God-approved marriage. So Paul is using this to describe almost what is a God-approved marriage between one, one man and one woman. Um, and this is the same description that we see in Genesis 2, verse 24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A marriage of one man, one woman, who come together in one flesh and live a life of faithfulness in that relationship. One wife, one husband. That is the first principle that we see. The second one is he speaks about intimacy. Be intimate. Verse 3, he says, The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Again, this is the answer to sexual immorality is sex within marriage couples coming together within marriage. The King James Version says, give your wife the affection that is due to her. And I almost think that's such a more beautiful word because it's not just the physical act of sex, it's the intimacy. God's design for marriage is that you have all your needs and desires met within this one relationship. Um, so he calls us to be intimate with one another. If we just think of the world we live in, do you ever wonder why on television, TV, social media, the best sex they show is always between unmarried people outside of wedlock? Why is it never a couple that's married 20 or 30 years? We must understand that sex is a gift that God gave within marriage, but the enemy realizes this and he will do whatever he can to get people to have as much sex outside of marriage and then to get married people to not have sex at all. Because it's a gift, and he's, he's trying to pervert the gift that God gave us. Um, if we look at verse 5, Paul says, 
do not deprive one another. In other words, do not let yourself lose focus of each other. Do not lose sight of your responsibility to meet the needs of your spouse. Sex is a gift within marriage. Do not let the enemy steal from that. Um, and we should treasure it for what it is. So be intimate within the confines of marriage. The next principle is that marriage is a mutual submission. Verse 4, it says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So Paul uses this opportunity to, to explain intimacy and surrender within a marriage. He's basically saying that marriage is a re relationship where you focus on the needs and wants of your partner and not your own. How many people go into a marriage thinking that that is the place where their partner is going to meet their needs? They're all there for the receiving end of it. It's about me, what I can get. But that is the total opposite of what Paul is saying then, the opposite of what a marriage is like. A marriage relationship is one where you give up your selfish rights, your desires, and you serve your partner, focused on their wants, their needs, their desires, and in that you meet each other. So it is a submission to one another. It is not an inward-focused relationship, but an outward one, focused on your partner and their needs and their wants. So it is a mutual submission. And then marriage is also a lifelong commitment. In verse 9, later on, it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. It is a lifelong commitment that we make. It is not for a couple of years until it doesn't excite me anymore. It is a covenant between a man and a woman. Thinking back on the verse in Genesis 2 that I read earlier, it's a place where two become one, one flesh, in a covenant relationship for, for life. So these are some of the principles that we can take for marriage, for marriage relationship, that it's between one wife, one husband, it's a place where we are intimate, it's a mutual submission, and it's a lifelong commitment. Moving on from marriage, he also speaks on divorce and gives us some principles on that. We see this in verse 10 to 11 and verse 39. It says, To the married I give the charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And later on, in verse 9, no, 39, it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. And the scripture is clear that divorce is not God's heart for marriage. That divorce is not what God wants. And some of you here tonight might have come from a household where your parents got divorced. Maybe you went through a divorce or you know someone who went through divorce. It really is such a difficult relational problem that causes so much hurt. Um, but looking at divorce, we need to understand that, yes, God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate divorced people. God hates what divorce does to society, the marriages that are broken up, children, communities. He hates what divorce does to the people that are going through it. But he doesn't hate divorced people. 
I myself come from a home where my parents were divorced, and I can honestly say it was one of the most painful, difficult things that I went through. And that is what God hates about divorce, what it causes to the people that go through it. But we need to understand that although God hates divorce, he doesn't hate divorced people. And unfortunately, a lot of divorced people have felt that way, that that they are hated or seen as less than or not accepted. And a lot of that comes from us as the church or as believers. And the thing is, it is true that God is not for divorce, but he died on the cross for all sins, and that includes divorce. Divorce is not a sin on its own that God didn't die for. So yes, God hates divorce, but he loves divorce sees, <laughs> and his heart is for them, and he can restore them, and he paid the price on the cross to cover their sins as well. So the principle of divorce is that's not God's heart for marriage, but his grace and his mercy is there to forgive. And then we move on to singleness. <laughs> so the first principle there is do not seek marriage. And as I say that, instantly a lot of you single people dislike me and I can almost see daggers shooting from your eyes at me. But it's not saying you cannot get married. In fact, later on in the scripture, Paul does say, um, sorry, in, the, in verse 36, he says, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no, no sin. And in the beginning of verse 38, he goes on to say, so then he who married, marries his betrothed does well. So Paul is not saying you cannot get married. I almost want to say he's speaking more of a position of your heart in your singleness. He's using the word seeking. Because here's the thing about marriage and relationships and seeking it. It consumes people. The word seeking literally means to actively try to find something or get something. You put all your effort into getting this one thing and it consumes people. They become obsessed with it. It determines their state of mind, their happiness, their purpose, their joy. They live their lives in fear of what if I don't get married? It consumes people. And that is the thing, what I mean when I say do not seek marriage. Do not allow it to become the purpose of your singleness because that has been what has happened to people. Your singleness is the season, your goal and your purpose in that is just to look for that husband or that wife because man, if I can meet them, then my life will begin. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be okay. And so that is what I mean when I say do not seek marriage. And the world puts a lot of pressure on single people. I'm single, I know. At every family gathering you go to, there's always an auntie or uncle or a tani that asks you, so have you met someone? When are you getting married? Or the worst one, what is wrong with you? Why don't you have a husband? So there is pressure, a lot of pressure. And honestly, I can write a PhD on this when it comes to singleness. I mean, I started as a 17-year-old girl Trusting the Lord for my husband, already a plan in my mind. When I'm this old, I'm going to meet him. And when I'm that old, I'm going to have kids. And I had this beautiful life planned out for myself. And thank the Lord 
that he changed my heart in what am I pursuing in my singleness? Because man, I've gone on a completely different journey and what an adventure it has been. It has been bigger and greater than any life I could have imagined for myself. And with that, I'm not saying it's been perfect. It hasn't been hard. It's tough. But the joy that I've experienced in singleness, the purpose that I've experienced in singleness, in my single years, it has been a time where I got to spend a year traveling the world, serving in local churches. I went on a church plant for four years to Mozambique, where I had the privilege of sharing the gospel, discipling girls, pouring myself out for the kingdom. What a joy it has been. And so when I say do not seek a husband or a wife, I don't mean don't desire it, because maybe you're sitting there and saying, sure, Anna, that's great for you, but I really want to get married. Disclosure, guys, I want to get married. I desire it, but I don't pursue or spend my whole single life seeking it. My husband can find me in the journey of finding my purpose in God's kingdom. So we can desire it, but it shouldn't be the purpose of your singleness to seek a husband or a wife. I almost want to say, if you spend your singleness with the purpose and the goal of finding a husband and a wife, thinking that everything will just be okay if I meet them, I want to make a bold statement and say you're going to be hugely disappointed in marriage. Because if you cannot find joy and purpose and your identity now, it's not gonna get fixed immediately through marriage, that marriage is the answer, you're gonna be disappointed. So I wanna encourage you to rather live your single lives, live it with, as a faithful, courageous, bold person, spending it for the kingdom of God. Samarel. <laughs> that brings me to the second part of the principle of singleness, which is that Paul calls us to be anxious about the kingdom. He says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So in your singleness, can you celebrate the gift that it is, the availability that you have, the freedom you have to say yes to so much more? And in that, I'm not speaking against marriage and what God calls marriage for, but in your single years, there is a gift of freedom. There is a gift of being available for people, for his kingdom in a different capacity. And can your singleness be about that? Being anxious, focusing on the kingdom of God. Let your focus be the kingdom. As I mentioned, that I went on a church plant for four years. Yes, as a single person. Yes, as a girl. And can I tell you that it takes boldness because no one in the world tells you that that's a good idea. In fact, everyone told me that is not a good idea. You shouldn't do it. But we can do bold and courageous things even in our singleness. We can build God's kingdom in our singleness. And we have to be bold because even well-meaning people in our lives might discourage us from doing that. I remember there was a lady who came on a mission to us in Mozambique on one of the trips and um, very nice, well-meaning lady. And one of the days she was chatting to me and she said, Anna, you probably spend most of your time just praying for your husband um, to come so that he can meet you here so that you can 
be safe in doing ministry because you probably don't get to walk in the streets because it's just so unsafe. Um, so although our motive was good, I walk those streets every day. I think they were safe, but sometimes it's going to take you being bold and saying yes to the kingdom of God, even though the world is telling you that as a single person, you shouldn't. And man, as I said before, what an adventure those four years was. Yes, it was hard, but it was the time in my life where God did the deepest work in my heart, where I got to see people's lives transformed, where I got to disciple girls, where I got to spend my life for his kingdom. And so I want to encourage you in your single years, make it about the kingdom of God. Don't make it about thinking the grass is greener on the other side and missing your single season because, yes, singleness is hard, but I'm sure if you ask any of the married people here tonight, marriage is hard too. Both are hard. So don't miss the joy of your singleness thinking that everything's going to be fixed the minute I get married. Be focused on the kingdom of God, living bold, courageous lives for his kingdom. Amen. <laughs> and then the last principle for, for single people is marry rather than burn with passion. And here Paul is saying in verse 36 that if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly to his, towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Simple, plain to the point. Do not live in sin but get married, to finish, and clear. <laughs> and then the last principle or the last relationship that Paul speaks about is for widows. Um, so in verse 39, he says that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, it, yet in my judgment, she's happier, happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So in this, again, simple. As a widow or widower, you are free to marry. But Paul encourages that the same principle that applies for a single person should apply if you are a widow or widower. So looking at all these relationships that we spoke of and the principles and behaviors for it. It is clear and it is good. But I almost want to say above the principles and behaviors, there's a deeper or a higher thing that Paul is calling us to in this chapter. And a lot of it is focused, he's speaking about singleness, that people should remain single, almost as if singleness is the better choice. But to understand that statement or why he focuses on that, we have to look at the why, the motive of his heart. And we see that from, um, from verse, sorry, from verse 26. But I'm not gonna read all of that. Um, but reading at that, what we do see is that Paul's concern is for people's hearts, is for their devotion to Jesus. At the end of that, that scripture in verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, 
but to pr promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And that is Paul's heart. In the scriptures, just leading up to that verse, he explains just that in marriage, you have more responsibility, more things that can um, take your attention away from the things of the kingdom. But what it boils down to is this, that he doesn't want to put restraints on people, but rather he's concerned about your devotion to Jesus. And so the bigger question we want to ask ourselves tonight above the principles and how to behave is what position does Jesus hold in your relationship status? If you are married, is your, married is your marriage focused on the things of the world, the things that the world says comes after marriage, career, house, kids? And don't get me wrong, those things are not bad. But if that is your focus, the pursuit of your heart, it takes away your devotion from Jesus. Or is your marriage a place that pursues Jesus, devoted to him, a place where the way that you love your wife, your husband, testifies to a broken world of his goodness, of his kingdom? Are you guys devoted in how you plan for your future together with Jesus? What is the focus of your marriage? If you are single, the mere fact of your singleness does not mean you are devoted to God. You can be single and not devoted to God. You can be single and your heart can be pursuing marriage. Your heart can be focused on so many other things. So who holds the throne of your heart when it comes to the relationship? Where does your devotion lie to Jesus when it comes to your relationship? Verse 23 in chapter 7 says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let them remain with God. May we remain with God. And this might seem like a tall order to you tonight. Maybe you feel like you've failed too much in marriage. You've made mistakes. But the good news is that the price that Jesus played, Jesus on that cross, paid the price for even the mistakes that we made in marriage. It covers our failures and our flaws. His forgiveness is there when it comes to the relationship. The love he poured out covers our disappointments and our pain. When we surrender that part of our lives to Jesus, when we give it over to him, devoted to him in that, he comes and he guides us through the messiness that is relationships. He strengthens us and shows us the way. Jesus paid the highest price for us and our response should be complete devotion in every area of our life. Nothing should get the higher seat than Jesus. So I started tonight by looking at just the brokenness of the world when it comes to relationships. And that is the reality we live in if Jesus is not on the throne, if he is not the devotion of our lives. We will see broken marriages. We will see depression in singleness. We will see all these things. But if Jesus is on the throne of our lives when it comes to this, when we live lives devoted to him in our relationships, we will see marriages restored. We will see joy in singleness, purpose in singleness. We will see a body of Christ who no longer allows world or the outside to define for us 
what relationships are, but rather a body who stands up and who, who determines and defines what relationships are for the world. Jesus on the throne, our one devotion, that is the answer. So my question to you this evening again is, what position does Jesus hold when it comes to your relationships? Where is he on the throne? Is he on the throne? And so as a response, I want us to take stock this evening. Maybe you're here tonight and you realize that somewhere you missed the mark, that you made relationships, either your marriage or your singleness, the pursuit, the focus of your life. And Jesus has not been on the throne, your devotion when it comes to this. So I want you to take a moment this evening and just respond to Jesus and just give over that position to him again, surrendering your relationships to him, allowing him to sit on the throne when it comes to your relationship. Or maybe you're here this evening and Jesus is on the throne and he is your devotion when it comes to your relationship status. Won't you take a moment tonight just thanking the Lord again for that, reestablishing his lordship in that area and pray for someone that perhaps you know that is not um, experiencing freedom in this area of their lives. So I'm just gonna give you a few moments to just speak to the Lord and then I'll end up for us in prayer. Jesus, we just, we just come and thank you tonight for your goodness and your mercy, Lord. Thank you that your word guides us through every situation in our lives, Lord. And tonight, Father, as we just spoke on relationships, Lord, we just want to come and surrender that to you this evening again and declare you as Lord. We want to declare you as our heart's desire, as our devotion, Lord, as the one that we live for above everything and anything else, Lord. So we come and surrender our relationships to you this evening, Lord, and we reestablish you as Lord, Father. And Father, we pray that as we go from here this evening, Lord, that you will remain the center of our relationship status, Father. 
and that as a church that we would be a beacon of light when it comes to this to a broken world Lord that we will testify of your goodness and your mercy in this aspect of our lives in Jesus name I pray amen and amen